problem in the church is we think there are different levels of sinners. There are tramps and drug addicts and prostitutes and terrorists, and they deserve judgment. They deserve to go to hell. But good people, well, that's different. We're good. We're decent. We give blood. We give money to Haiti relief or the tsunami relief, and we help the Red Cross, and we volunteer in the city, and we even help at church with things. But the truth of the matter is, you can do all that, and you can be lost and going to hell. That's right. Being in a church doesn't get you right with God. I've been in ministry long enough to know that I've met a lot of church members that weren't saved. And quite honestly, God has driven into my mind and into my heart and will not let it go that on every Sunday that I stand up to preach in this church, there are a hundred people in this room that are members of this church that if you die today, you will spend eternity in hell. That you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You may be in Sunday school. You may tithe. You may mark the envelope. You may even read your Bible. But you cannot look back on your life at this moment and say, I have had a life-changing experience when I acknowledge that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. When I acknowledge that it wasn't baptism, it wasn't confirmation, it wasn't christening, it wasn't my mama telling me I was saved or my spouse telling me I was saved or my, my grandparents telling me I was saved. I, I, I don't have the knowledge and the awareness that if I died today, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I would wake up in eternity in heaven. You see, we are so indoctrinated with religion that we don't know the difference between being good religious people and being God's people. Because if there are 185 to 240 million Christians in America, you explain to me why we're in the mess we're in. Because you couldn't have that many Christians in this country and cults and satanic worship and a lot of other things being able to make inroads into this nation that they are. The reality is we may have maybe half that many Christians in this country. And people think that because they're not something else, they're a Christian. I'm talking this morning to religious people. And that's who Jesus talked to. You remember it was religious people who had memorized the first five books of the Bible who could quote all the law and the 600 additional laws that they had added. And he said that they were whitewashed tombs and of their father, the devil. Jesus was harder on religious people than he was on any prostitute or tax collector. In fact, the people who knew they were lost were attracted to Jesus. The people that wouldn't admit they were lost hated him. And one of the reasons why people get repulsed by the preaching of the Word of God when they're in church is because they don't want to obey and follow what the Word of God says, that you have to humble yourself to come to God, that your pride keeps you from having a personal relationship with Christ, that it's not about knowing God in a head sense of knowing Him. 
It is about having a life-changing heart relationship with Him. Now, we have compartmentalized sin. We, we think this is really bad and this is not really bad. You know, Osama bin Laden, he, he's a sinner. And, but you know what? In the eyes of God, one sin he committed is no different than one sin you've committed. Amen. Sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Amen. Your sin, not the terrorist, not the people that are opening the topless bars, not the homosexuals, not the... You can point at all them and say, boy, those are bad sinners, and they, they may be and they are, but they are no worse sinners than you and I. Because your sin and my sin put Jesus on that cross. Not just those people out there. It's us people in here. Our sin put Jesus on that cross. And either we will pay the price in eternity in hell for our sin, or we will accept the price paid for our sin by Jesus Christ. And Jesus said when he called people, he said he called them publicly. He said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. Let, let me just throw something out here. One of the reasons why some of you have ne never shared your faith is not because you're introverted and not because you don't know how. It's because you don't have a faith to share. Because there's nothing in you that can testify to the life-changing, blood-cleansing power of Jesus Christ in your life. That's, right. That's why you don't share your faith. Because if it's good news, you can't keep it quiet. Amen. You see, the reason we don't share our faith is, is not because somebody hasn't given us a method or a plan. There are methods and plans. Amen. The reason is we don't care because we're in the same condition as the people we say we're supposed to care about. We're lost That's right. and without Christ. Do you have a story? It's easy for us to look at the world and just say, boy, those are sinners out there. And, you know, we need to clean up this community of sinners. It's hard for us in the church, good people, who know how to clean up on Sunday. It's hard for us to admit, I'm a sinner. I am evil, I am depraved, I am vile, I am wicked at my core. And the only thing that makes me good is Christ. Not my deeds and my works. And we, we bought this lie that we think that if I do enough good deeds, and you'll hear it, if you listen to people talk in your Sunday school class, if you listen to Christians talking to one another, there's this subtle implication that comes across that says, well, you know, I've done a lot of good things. But you could do good things every waking moment of your life and still spend eternity in hell. Amen. Good things are not going to get you into heaven. Since man is depraved, he will not ask the ultimate question until he has dislodged himself from a temporal illusion that he can save himself. Now, here's something I want you to write down as we look at this message today about a changed life. 
The doctrine of total depravity doesn't teach there is no good in man. I'm going to repeat this because you need to write it down and remember it. Because some of you, if you are saved, you have relatives and work associates and friends that believe that they're good enough to go to heaven. The doctrine of total depravity does not teach that there is no good in man. It teaches that there is no good in man that can satisfy God. It doesn't teach that there is no good in man. It teaches that there is no good in man that can satisfy God. In other words, all my righteousness is as filthy rags in the eyes of God. C.S. Lewis said, we are all fallen creatures and all very hard to live with. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we have all come to realize that a man can be educated and cultured and still be a beast. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to spend most of our time today. Titus chapter 3. And if you read your Bible and you read it carefully, there are only two classifications of people. There are those that are saved and those that are lost. There's nobody in between. Nowhere in the Word of God did you find that you get reincarnated. Nowhere in the Word of God do you find that you can go to purgatory and somebody can pray you out of there and ultimately you'll get to heaven. Nowhere in the Bible do you find that there's total annihilation after death, that you live this life and then you're just no more. The Bible says that your life is eternal. It is eternal in heaven by grace or it is eternal in hell because you've rejected grace and are under the judgment of God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the deeds, basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What is the nature of the change? Well, here's the issue. If you watch Dr. Phil and if you watch Oprah and if you watch all these shows and if you go into bookstores, you find all these self-help books to make you feel better about yourself. Can I tell you something? There's no such thing as a self-image problem. There is such a thing as a self-arrogance problem. Amen. Well, I have a self-image problem. I'm insecure. No, you don't. You think you can be something that you can't be apart from God. Amen. That's your image problem. You think you can be good enough or kind enough or sweet enough that you can somehow satisfy God. The reason people have a self-image problem is because they look in the mirror and they see they're sinners, but they don't want to admit it. Amen. They don't want to admit that their problem is in the core of their heart, in the core of their being, that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And the Paul uses these words that are not complimentary. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, hatred. These are negative things. <laughs> Now, 
The problem, again, is not that we think because I haven't done drugs and I haven't slept around and, and I haven't done this and I'm not into homosexuality or bestiality or anything else that we think somehow that classifies us in a better category. But sin is sin. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned. All, not some, not most, all. Religious people, unreligious people. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now what is sin? Sin is knowing what is right to do and not doing it. Amen. Sin is disobedience. Sin is a multitude of things. The Bible says whatever is not of faith is not sin. By the way, if you don't tithe, you're a sinner. Because you don't believe what God says. So already you've called God a liar by not being a tither. Now that doesn't have anything to do with salvation. You don't get to heaven because you're a tither, but you ought to tithe because you're going to heaven. Amen. You see, sin is that time and that moment when I decide that God will not control my life in some area. When I lie to my parents, when I steal, when I'm disobedient, when I'm foolish, when I'm envy, when I'm full of malice or hateful to other people. The problem is we are like some folks in the Bible, and you're going to see it. I think it's going to be on the screen out of Luke chapter 13. Don't turn there because I want you to stay in Titus chapter 3. But we're like people in the Bible. When God judges, we think that, huh, you know, I tell you what, the reason I, don't, I hadn't had any judgment is because I'm better than those people. That's exactly what they said after Jesus and John in Luke's gospel had been talking about what deserves the mercy of God. This is what they said, Luke 13. Now on the same occasion when he was talking about what deserved the judgment of God, there were some present who appeared to him. You jumped ahead of me. Uh, there were some present who appeared, uh, uh, who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent. The people who came to him and said, you think that you haven't been judged and so you're a better person than them. He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose, they didn't even bring this situation up, or you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, that they were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Matthew 19, 23, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said you can be good, but being good doesn't make you of God. You can do good things, but you're not saved until you admit that you are a sinner and swallow your pride. And the reason some of you are members of this church 
and you've never admitted that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you're holding on to your obituary is going to read, member of Sherwood Baptist Church, but if God wrote your obituary, it would say lost member of Sherwood Baptist Church, today in hell, having much knowledge and no life. Pride will keep you from getting up in the back, in the middle, going around somebody, over somebody, from the balcony, from the mezzanines, from the choir loft. Pride will keep you from getting up and walking down this aisle and saying, I am a lost church member. I need to be saved. I've never given my heart to Jesus Christ. And if I, if I do, I, don't, I can't nail it down. I can't look somebody in the eyes and say without a shadow of a doubt, I know that if I die today, I would go to heaven. The best you can do is not enough. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. It is not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, positively, it's a work of grace. And it's a change that comes, and change that affects our desires, our attitudes, our priorities, how we think, how we live, the choices we make. It's a positive change, but one of the great lies of Satan that he tells to people inside the church and outside the church is that God loves you too much to send you to hell. That's right. No, God loved you so much that he sent his son to go through hell on a cross so you could have life. Amen. And if you reject that, God's justice is so strong and his holiness is so pure that he will let you go to hell because you have chosen to reject his way. Amen. Now, let's look at the necessity of salvation on God's terms. First of all, salvation is a result of God's kindness. It's a result of God's kindness. We need to understand God didn't have to save us. When our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents Adam and Eve ate us out of house and home and, kicked, and we got kicked out of the garden, God in, in, in his justice could have said, that's it, every man and woman born from here on out will live separated from me, but he didn't. God gave us his kindness. The word can also be translated goodness or graciousness. The scripture says in the book of Romans, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. It shouldn't be the fear of hell that leads us to repent. It should be the goodness of God that he loved us enough and has put up with us and has been patient with us that leads us to repentance. Secondly, salvation is the result of God's love. Why? Because we would never love God on our own. There's nothing about us that would love God on our own. We would never choose to love God on our own. God had to choose to love us when we weren't lovable. Romans 5, 8, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, 1, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. Thirdly, salvation does not come by good works. No matter how much we do, somebody from outside this world had to come into this world and live a perfect life and meet all the requirements of God for salvation 
so that sin could be put on him. Every sin of every person ever committed, past, present, and future, could be put on him, and he could build the bridge so that you and I could be saved. Romans 3.20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. All the law does is tell us we're sinners. Well, I'm not a sinner. You ever broken the law? Everybody in this room that drives has broken the law. Amen. So you're a sinner. By the law is the knowledge of sin. You ever coasted through a stop sign when you knew nothing was coming the other three directions? You ever tapped your brakes when you saw a police car? You're a sinner. By the knowledge of law, there's sin. You ever had a questionable deduction on your income tax? You're a sinner. You ever lied about a grade? Ever lied about the report that the teacher told you to take home to your mom and dad and sign? Ever faked a signature? You're a sinner. And you can't fix it even by going and saying you're sorry. You can't walk down to the sheriff's department or the police office uh, tomorrow morning and say, look, I've been speeding 745 times what I owe. I need to pay all this off. It still won't keep you from being a sinner. By the law is knowledge of sin. Number four, salvation is by God's mercy. The word means compassion. It's by God's mercy. Ephesians 2, 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, what are the effects of a changed life through saving grace? First of all, regeneration. Regeneration. The word means to become new. It's a spiritual rebirth or a new life. And it comes, he says, by washing. That doesn't mean by baptism. There are some people that read that and say, oh, uh, we're saved by being baptized. Baptism is an act of obedience. It doesn't save you. Listen, you can be baptized in the Jordan River until every Jewish fish knows you by name. <laughs> but it won't save you. That's right. I've been baptized in the Jordan River. I've baptized people in the Jordan River, but that didn't save me. Right. I was baptized before I was baptized in the Jordan River. I walked down the aisle when I was a little boy because I was going to beat my best friend, Mike Green, down the aisle during Bible school because he walked up to me before the last session of Bible school and said, I'm going to get saved today. And I said, really? He said, yep, I'm going down this morning. I'm going to get saved today. And I thought to myself, Mike Green is not going to beat me at anything. <laughs> and so I sat one row ahead of him, and the minute we started that invitation, I got down the front and said, I want to be saved. I didn't want to be saved. I didn't know I wanted to be saved. I went down, and my preacher met me, and he said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be saved. He said, let's go up to the baptistry on Sunday. Never talked to me, never asked me if I understood I was a sinner, never took me through a first steps class, never did anything. I walked into baptismal waters, and from the age of nine until the age of 18, I thought I was saved and I was lost. It is by regeneration. The word washing is a picture that the change is so radical that it is a complete and drastic washing away of everything. It's a picture, by the way, of total immersion. 
that everything has become clean and everything has become new. Here's what I know when I got saved. My debt was paid. My heart was changed. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. I've been delivered from selfishness and greed and self-righteousness. I'm delivered from guilt and doubt and fear, and I've got a renewed mind, and I'm growing gradually. (laughs) Not as much as I want to, but I'm not where I used to be. In Ephesians and Colossians, Paul said, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Revelation 1, 5, Jesus loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Regeneration and the evidences of a changed life is renewal. Renewal. The word there means to make new or to make new spiritually or to begin all over again. And who does that? The Holy Spirit does that. You see, there's regeneration. That's the moment of salvation. And then there's renewal. That's sanctification. That's God changing us bit by bit, moment by moment, conforming us and transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. W.E. Vine says of this word renewal, it is the continual operation of the indwelling spirit of God in our lives. We says this is the word of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, though the outer man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day by day. Ephesians 4, 22, being renewed in the spirit of your mind. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 24, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his very soul? I want to ask you today, do you have a testimony? Do you have a testimony of a changed life? If you do and you are saved, then words like apathy and laziness after God and indifference to the things of God cannot be a part of your operating vocabulary. It is inconsistent with the power of the Holy Spirit for a believer to live a powerless life. I want to ask you, just me and you talking, let's just go to Starbucks for a minute and I'll buy the most expensive coffee in town. And we'll sit down across from a table and you just look at me eyeball to eyeball face to face, don't look away, don't do that little diverted look, just me and you talking, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you died today, you would spend eternity in heaven? Now listen, there are people in this room that today, it may be your last chance to be saved. Because you don't have a promise of another day. Not only that, you don't have a promise of another breath. And God may have orchestrated for you to be here today and for me to preach this message in this series because after today, there's not another chance for you. That's not fear. 
That's fact. There are people that are going to be in the obituaries tomorrow that didn't plan on being there today. You have no promise of another moment. You have no promise of another invitation. You have no promise of another opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Satan will tell you, put it off, wait, think about it. Talk to your family about it. Don't just get up and do this. Tomorrow is always the devil's word. Today is the day of salvation. I want to ask you to stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to ask our staff to move immediately into position. And before we even start singing, if you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved today, then I'm going to ask you to get up from where you are and I'm going to ask you to find a staff member right now. We have counselors that want to talk with you. You need to nail this down. You need to settle this today. Not tonight when there's less crowd. You need to settle it today. And so I'm going to ask you from wherever you are, a man, a woman, a young person, a child, from wherever you are, that you come and respond today to this moment to this invitation, to God's invitation, that you know him as your personal Lord and Savior. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to ask you a question. Do you know, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know Christ? I didn't ask you if you liked the worship. I didn't ask you if you liked the church. I didn't ask you if you liked your Sunday school class. I ask you, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt right now that you are saved. Now, if you know you're saved, I want to ask you another question. Is there any evidence that the members of your family are saved? Do they know? Are they trusting in something other than Jesus to get them into heaven? And what are you going to do about that in light of the message that you just heard, because it's not going to be good enough to cry and squall and bawl when they're dead one day and you, and you got to bury them in the ground and you know, you know that they don't know Christ and that means that they're going to spend eternity in hell because you didn't care enough to risk hurting their feelings to talk to them about the gospel. If they end up rejecting Christ, don't let the blood be on your hands. So as we begin to sing, I'm going to ask you to step out and come. Some of you need to just come to this altar and just plead before God on the behalf of people that you know need to be saved. But as we sing, you step out. You come right now.